If you have your Bible, we're turning to the book of Psalms this morning. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Whenever you get the place, we're just going to bow for a moment and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts uh, just before we open the Word of God again. Father, we just bow before Thee and we come to Your Word now. And we ask, Lord, that you indeed would move in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that thou will come and speak to all of our souls this morning. And, Father, we pray that in Jesus' name that you will take away every distraction, Lord, everything, Lord, that would just seek to divert or hinder in the next few moments. We pray that in Jesus' name that thou will come and speak. I need your help, Lord. Ask for that fresh endowment of power. We ask it in the Saviour's name. Amen. Psalm 139, please, and cast your eye down to verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. My text this morning is a very small text. And if I could get a big neon light sign, I would put my text up on it this morning for every believer, not only in this assembly to see, but every believer in this county, every every believer in this island, and indeed every believer in the world, if I could get a sign big enough and bright enough My text this morning was just two words. Try me. Try me. You know, there's times in all of our lives whenever we come like the Syrophoenician as she came to the Lord Jesus Christ and she had on her heart, help me. We all pray that at times. Maybe that has been the very cry of your soul in the week that's gone by. Lord, help me. Thank God that he's a very present help in the time of trouble. Then there's times in the midst of this affliction and the storms and the trials. When we get alone with God and like Job, we would cry, Lord, hide me. Hide me, Lord. Whenever the enemy comes and relentless in the family and in the home and in the mind, there's times when we can't even pray big theological prayers and we would just get down and say, Lord, hide me. Hide me. Then at times we will get alone with the Lord and we'll be like Jabez of a bygone day. And we'll pray with fervency and zeal in our soul, Lord, bless me. Bless me indeed. You'll remember Elijah. Elijah as he stood in Mount Carmel with the 450 false prophets of Baal. He could cry, Oh Lord God, hear me. But I wonder, have we ever got to the place in our life where we have cried, try me? I tell you, dear friends, this morning, the time for you and I to get real with God, it has come. The Bible says that the night is far spent, the day is at hand. For our salvation is near than when we first believed. 
James, the half-brother of the Lord, was the first man to write a book in the New Testament, and he said, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And I tell you, dear friends, this morning, every single one of us, we need to ask the Lord to lift the lid on our lives. Just to get alone with God, away from the opinions of men, to get away from all of the excuses, get away from all of the things that steal our attention and get down on our knees and even on our belly before God and say, Lord, show me what you think of my life. You see, David was an old man whenever he penned Psalm 139. And he had listened to the opinions of men for long enough. David wasn't interested in what men thought about him anymore. David got to a place in his walk with God where he said, Lord, I want to know what you think of me. And he could cry, search me, O God, and know my heart. I think the one word that was over the life of David at this time was the word reality. Reality. I tell you, dear friends, I think we could say like the minister in the island of Lewis before the awakening broke out there, he penned, there is today in some quarters a hunger for reality. The average man is positively tired of dead formality in the realm of religion. There is something within his soul that is seeking for that which is real. And I wonder this morning, has there come a point in your life where you say to yourself, Lord, it's time that you and I get real one with another. It's time where I go into the place with God where God becomes real. Where he's not just a phrase or a cliche that we bring out of our cupboard every now and again. Where we know something of the vital reality of God. Where we know something of the presence of God in our lives. I wonder, have you ever had the experience of reading through the Acts of the Apostles? And you see what God did among those men and women. They were unlearned men and women. They were just ordinary people like you and I. But the power of God rested upon them. Whenever you read of Moody and Finney, praying high, Amy Carmichael, Mary Slessor, and you look at their lives and say, Lord, their life is drastically different than my life. Why is it, Lord, that these people of a bygone day seem to have something of the reality of God in their life? Where it was something that they lived with God where they were conscious of the presence of the divine, where there was something of vital reality in their life. I wonder, have you ever come to that place? Well, I tell you, dear friends, if you haven't come to that place, it's about time that you did. To have reality with God. You see, dear friends, we can have ritual, we can have rhetoric, we can even have regulations. And have all of that without reality. We can have our religion. We can have all our tick box theology. But I want to tell you dear men and women this morning. God didn't save us to love theology. God called us out of darkness and the light to love a person. To fall in love with him. To have that reality of God in our life. 
I tell you, dear friends, this morning the world is looking for reality. The world this morning is just longing to see something that's real. Everything around us is sham. Everything around us is just fleeting past. And the world is longing for reality. And indeed the church is longing for reality. Something of the divine. Something of the mark of God upon the life. I heard a man recently say, That the church can no longer say as they did in Acts chapter 3, such as I have, give I unto you. You'll remember when Peter and John went up into the temple to pray and they saw a man that was lame, 40 years. And Peter went over to him and said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And there's many of us even here this morning, dear friends, we have nothing to give. There's nothing to give. Oh, we can give a verse of Scripture. We can give our opinion on some doctrine. We can give our idea in some uh, ideology of man. But I wonder, can we give anything to a dying world? Can we put anything into the life of a man or woman that's wrecked by drink and drugs and immorality? Have we anything to give? You see, the Lord Jesus said, He that believeth in me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Not a stream, not a pool, not even a well, not even one river, but rivers of living water. Rivers that will flow out, touch your community, touch lives, change men and women that they'll never be the same again. And one of the cries of my heart has been in the last week before God from the words of the Psalm 85, Oh God, turn again and cause thy face to shine upon us. To have something of that conscious awareness of God in our life. When we get alone to pray that it's not prayers that we prayed last week. When we get alone with God where we just don't rhyme off the past time. Where there's that reality with God. Where the creator, the one that spoke in Genesis 1. He draws near and comes into that little closet. And you can commune face to face with God as Abraham and Moses did. Something of the divine. Something that's fresh. Something that's real. David got to that place. David was there. David had the throne. David had money and gold. He he penned maybe 75 psalms. He knew all about the eulogies of men. Saul is slain as thousands. And David is tens of thousands. But David got to the place and he said, Lord... Lord, what do you think this morning? Wasn't that the theme of the heart whenever the hymn writer penned, Search me, O God, my actions try, and let my life appear as seen by thine all-searching eye to me, my way make clear. Throw light into the darkened cells where passions reign within. Quicken my conscience till it feels the loathsomeness of sin. Search all my thoughts, my secret springs, the motives that control, the chambers where polluted things hold empire o'er my soul. Try me, O oh God. I wonder would you dare pray that this morning. I wonder would you dare to pray just those two words. I'm not asking you to pray a big prayer. 
I'm not asking you to see how long you can pray or how loud you can pray. I'm asking you this morning, would you be able to say, God, try me? You see, that word try, it's really the word in the Hebrew, it's a stronger word than try, it's the word to test. Test me. We live in a world of tests. Whenever you're at school, you've done your maths test, your spelling test, to see if you come up to the, to the standard. You have the MOT test, you have your eye test, you have your fitness test, your driving test. Whenever you're not well, you'll go and you'll get a blood test. I was driving through the town the other day and seen on the side of a bus stop it said, book your PCR test. You know what shot into my mind, dear friends, this morning? That God has a PCR test. Oh, he does. God has a PCR test, dear men and women, and he's been using it on you and I ever since the moment that we got saved. Do you know what it is? God's PCR test is proving Christian reality. Proving Christian reality. He never runs out of testing kits. He's never double booked. It's 100% accurate. He's never biased. The results are never late. God's PCR test is 100% accurate. And ever since you and I have been saved, God has been proving our Christian reality. Unbeknownst to us, every move that we make and every step that we take is under scrutiny of the Almighty God. You see, this test is not taken and done by a man in a white coat with a visor, with a swab in his hand and with surgical gloves. But we're going bigger than that this morning. This test that you and I have been sitting and the test that you and I will sit this morning is taken by the hand of omnipotence. If you cast your eye to verse 2 of the psalm, in verse 2 it says, Thou knowest my down-sittings and mine uprisings. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. The first description of the tester in this chapter is he's the all-knowing one. The all-knowing one. You know, dear friends, the more I go get on through my life with the Lord, there's one thing I get to know, and that's how little I know. The apostle said we know nothing, but God knows everything. You see, we can hide from others, but we can't hide from God. And the time has come in the church where we come out of our under the trees like Adam and Eve. The time has come in the church where we have to come out of the side of the boat where we were sleeping and hiding like Jonah. The time has come when we have to come out of the cave where Elijah was and we have to stand and wrap our face in a mantle and stand before God. He's the all-knowing one. He knows what you did during the week, sir. He, he knows that look that you had upon another woman. He, he knows all things, dear friends. And even at this very moment, his eye is heavy upon us. He's not only described in this chapter as the all-knowing one in verse 7. Whether shall I go from thy spirit and whether shall I flee from thy presence? He's the all-present one. He's the all-present one. Whenever your parents are not there, he's there. Whenever your husband's not there, sir, he's there. Whenever your wife's not there, he's there. 
Whether shall I go from thy presence? And the psalmist went on, he says, If I take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the earth, even there, you're there. Oh, sir, let me tell you, you might be here this morning, but you were somewhere different during the week, but let me tell you this, God was there. God was there. He's not only the all-knowing one and the all-present one, verse 16. It says, Thine eyes did see me. Verse 12, it says, Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee. He's not only the all-knowing one and the all-present one, he's the all-seeing one. He sees how you fill out your tax reforms. He, he sees the money that you have in your hand where you give more and you get a little bit of cash back. He sees that. He, he sees the text messages that we send. He sees what we watch on television. He not only knows it and he's not only there, but he sees it. And he's recording it. But not only is he the all-knowing one and the all-present one and the all-seeing one in verse 14, he's described as the all-powerful one. Because he talks about the wonderful works of God. You see, he's the one that does the test. And this is just a little pretest. I remember whenever I was at school, and remember whenever you're doing the GCSEs, you used to do a mock test. This is just a mock. Because there's coming a day whenever the, the PCR test of God will be done away with and you and I as believers, we will stand before God on our own and we'll stand before him at the great white throne judgment seat or the, the bema seat, sorry, and our, our works will be tried as but by fire. The word there is tested. And all our service and all our giving and all our doing and all our praying and all of our activity will all be unraveled before God. There'll be no jury there. There'll be no defense there. There'll be no barrister there. You and I standing regal before God. And every man should be tried, tested. And this is only a little mock test. This is only a little, this is only a little warm up to what's coming in the, in the days to come. God's PCR test. Lord, this morning will you put me through your proving Christian reality? And Lord, I want to know if there's a negative or positive. You see, Job could say that God visits man every, every morning and he tries him every moment. Every moment. Every moment of the day, he's testing us, trying us, observing us and watching us. David got to the place where he said, Lord, I want to know what you know. It doesn't matter, Lord, what I know. It matters what you know. It doesn't matter, Lord, what others see. It matters what you see. Lord, test me. And God took him up on that test. You know, dear friends, this morning, if you are going to pray that prayer, God will take you up. God will take you up and he'll search you. He'll test you. He'll lift the lid of your life and he'll examine you. And I want to give you three things this morning that God has been testing ever since the moment that you got saved. These are three things that you'll need to pass on if you want vital reality with God. You see, dear friends, there's no easy way to getting to know him. There's no easy way of, of getting intimate with God. Friends, it takes time. It takes a disciplined life. It takes men and women that mean business with God. The first thing that God will test in the PCR test, are you clean? 
Are you clean? You see, dear friends, I want to tell you the one thing that God looks for at the start of a believer's vital reality with him is purity. To have vital intimacy with God, you must be clean. One of the most vivid pictures in the Bible of uncleanness and defilement is a picture of a leper. And the leper, whenever he used to come and walk through the the streets of Jerusalem or wherever he used to be in Nice, he used to be dressed in beggar's garment and he used to have a bell in his hand and he had to cover his top lip. But there was one word in his vocabulary that he had to cry night and day. He had to cry, I'm unclean. Unclean. There were a few things that a leper could never do. A leper, the moment that he was discovered as a leper, he was barred from working for God. He couldn't serve God. He was polluted. He was defiled. And I've got a verse of Scripture for you this morning in Isaiah 52. It says, Touch not the unclean thing. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. And let me tell you, dear friends, this morning, if you're involved in the work of God, you'll need to be clean. You'll need to be clean. It's that little word, the unclean thing, that got my attention during the week. You could be in this meeting and you're not involved in a lot of things that are wrong, but there could only be one thing in your life that's wrong. It's the unclean thing. And I've been praying during the week and even seeking the Lord and fasting, that praying that, Lord, even whenever I'm preaching, will you put in the hearts of men and women what it is you're trying to say? I wonder, is there an unclean thing in your life? And you know, most probably you already know what it is. But not only was a leper barred from working for God, he was barred from worshipping God. He couldn't enter the temple. He wasn't allowed to come into the holy place. Whenever the Levites, whenever the high priest was going to go in on the day of atonement, in behind the curtain, into the holy of holies, into the presence of God, he had to bathe himself in water. He had to wash his hands and his feet. He had to be clean. And you know, dear friends, if that priest, that high priest had walked in behind that veil and seen the Shekinah glory and he'd have been there with defilement on his body, you know what had happened? He would have died there and then. I want to tell you, dear friends, God hasn't changed. Our opinion of him has. But God hasn't changed. You remember in Zechariah chapter 3, The story is told by God himself of a man, the high priest Joshua, who came into the holy, into the, into the outer court. And it says that his garments were filthy. And Satan stood at his right hand to resist him. And it's interesting to note this, that Satan didn't even say a word. He didn't have to. He knew that God knew that uncleanness was enough to condemn him. Uncleanness will bar you from intimacy with God. You see, in the old economy, it was wash or die. Wash or die. Do you know, dear friends, this morning, if you and I are not clean before God, if we're not pure with integrity in our heart, let me tell you, your spiritual life will die. That's why some of you in this meeting this morning, you're spiritually dead. Now, just just listen to what God's saying. There's no change in your life. There's no vital reality with God. And I wonder, is it because there's an unclean thing in your life? Now, God's here this morning. God's talking to some of you. 
The Bible talks about clean hands. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands. Clean hands. Clean hands, sir, have you got clean hands? Mother, have you got clean hands? Your hands will not be clean whenever you're scrolling through your phone. Not be clean. Sir, your hands will not be clean if you're holding hands with another woman that's not your wife. You don't have clean hands. But the Bible not only talks about clean hands, it talks about clean lips. Isaiah, the man of God, as he came into the holy place, into the temple, and he saw the vision of God, he thought he was doing well. He had already prophesied five chapters of the Bible. But whenever he got alone with God, God lifted the lid in his life and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. James in his little epistle, he said, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. Who art thou that judgest another? There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou? I wonder, have you got unclean lips? To be unclean if you tell lies. To be unclean if you tell dirty jokes. They'll be unclean if you tell stories about other believers. They'll be unclean lips and you'll not have vital reality with God. The Bible also talks about a clean mind. Paul threatened to Titus. He said that there'll be those in the end days will have a mind that's defiled. Defiled. I wonder is there someone here this morning and you're, you're fiddling about with pornography. And your parents don't know anything about it, but the all-knowing, the all-seeing, the omnipresent was there. He's in that room. And he says, you're defiled. And I can't become real to you. Talks about unclean eyes. Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why should I then look upon a maid or a young woman? It also talks about a clean heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I wonder, have you got a pure heart this morning? David, that man of God, after he sinned, he said, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew your right spirit within me. A clean heart. Reality was God. You know, dear friends, one of the missing notes in the church today is a word, holiness. Now, I want you to listen to me now. Holiness. Because the Bible says that you can't please God without faith, without the shedding of blood. There's no forgiveness. But friend, I want to tell you this, and I'll tell you it for absolutely nothing. I'll give it to you for free, that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Doesn't matter how busy you are. It doesn't matter how active you are in the service of God. It doesn't even matter how many verses of Scripture or how well you know your theology. Without holiness, no man shall see God. To be clean, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Peter could say, it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. To be a holy people set apart for God. It was Murray McShane, that young man that died at 29 over in Scotland. He said, the most fearful weapon in the hand of God is a holy man and a holy woman. 
It was Jonathan Edwards who brought revival to New England, who spent three days fasting and praying, saying, Lord, give me New England. And he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, seeing a nation turn back to God. It was Jonathan Edwards, that man, who said, Oh, to be as holy as possible for a saved sinner to be. To be holy. To abhor that which is evil, to cleave to that which is good. To lay apart all your filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. It was William Gurnall, that great Puritan of a bygone day. Listen to this. He said, say not that you have royal blood in your veins. Say not that you are born of God if you cannot prove your pedigree by a holy life. Now there's some of you men here this morning. I've never seen you in the prayer meeting. I've never seen you crying for your family. I have no evidence in my life that you're a holy man. Oh, you would come to to get money and you'd talk about cattle and all that. But are you holy? Are you holy? Because I want to tell you, dear friends, this morning, without it, no man shall see the Lord. Let me say it again. Well, Gurnall said, Say not that you have royal veins and blood in your veins. Say not that you are born of God if you cannot prove your pedigree by a holy life. Can you prove it? Now, God's screwing down on some of you this morning. Can you prove it? Oh, you say to me, Stephen, we can't be sinless. No, we can't. But I can tell you, dear friends, we can sin less. We'll never be sinless. But I'm sure a whole lot of us, we could do a whole lot less sinning than what we are. To be clean and to be pure. You remember what the hymn writer said, full salvation. Full salvation. You see, I not only believe in a gospel that's for free. I not only believe in a gospel that's for all and that's forever, but I believe in a gospel that's full. I believe that a man or woman that comes to God, no matter how much sin they have, no matter how many chains they have, I believe God Almighty can set them free. I believe that. I believe if an alcoholic could come to the Lord, the Lord can set him free in a moment. I believe if a drug addict or a sodomite can come to the Lord, he'll snap the chains in a moment of time. Say amen if you believe that. Do you believe that the same God can take away your anger? Do you believe the same God that can take away lust and can take away the chains of addiction, can take away the chains of envy? Do you believe the one that can set the alcoholic free and the murderer free and all the sins that we name and the categories of sin? Do you believe he can set a man or woman free from bitterness? Do you believe he can set a man or woman free from pride? So I want to tell you, dear friends, there's times in the prayer meeting when we sing it, and I believe it with all my heart, there's power, wonder-working power in the blood. I believe that. I believe in a full salvation. I believe that the Lord Jesus can give you victory over sin, where you no longer live in the chains of, of sin, confession, sin, confession. But there's a moment in your life you say, Lord, I want to be real with God. Set me free from the chains, Lord. And the power of the blood will liberate you there and then. I believe that. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you ever been loose from your sin? You see, I not only believe in the blood that can deal with the penalty of sin, but I believe in the blood that deals with the power of sin. I believe in the blood, the blood that can deal with not only the contamination of sin, but the control of sin. 
I believe that the blood not only deals with the fruit, but it can go right to the root. I believe that. I believe that the work on the cross was so full that the Lord Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I believe that. I believe that with all of my heart. And if you're in this meeting this morning and you're not saved, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, that man on the center cross, because his blood was shed and because he rose again, he's able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God. Now let me ask you a wee question. Is that real to you? Or is it just theology? Is that a real, living, vibrant reality in your life? Or is it just something that we sing about? Something that we talk about? Oh, I tell you, dear friends, this morning, God can set you free. There's two times in the Bible, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7 and John chapter 5, when the Lord Jesus dealt with the woman that was a sinner and the man at the pool. You know what he said to those two people? He said, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. To have an expectation in your life to live a holy life. In John's Gospel, John's Epistle, chapter 2, this is what he said. He said, I write unto you, little children, that ye sin not. Don't sin. But if ye sin, ye have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, we can come to God as we are as sinners, but friends, he doesn't want you to stay as you are. He doesn't want you to stay as you are. God doesn't want to see you with the same sins and same chains that you have the moment that you're saved. And I put it to you this morning. I heard a man and my father said to me the other day that we were sin and word, thought and every day. We sin and word, thought and deed every day. Friend, let me tell you this. Has God done anything in your life if you're living like that? If you're just doing the same things that you used to do, what's the point in being saved? What's the point in knowing God if you're going to live the same way? To lay off all of our sin and all of our chains and to get alone with God and say, Lord, I want vital reality with God. And one verse of Scripture that shook me to my knees during the week and made me weep in the place of prayer. The Bible says this, He that committeth sin continually is of the devil. He that lives in continual sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him that he cannot sin. Whosoever is born of God doesn't continue in sin. Oh, friend, let me tell you this. If you're doing as much sinning now as you were before you were saved, there's something wrong. There's victory over sin. There's a plane that you can get into where you, where, you, where you get victory over sin. Oh, you'll never be sinless, but you can get victory over it. Now, God has put his little PCR test down into our lives this morning, proving the Christian reality. Is that where you're living? Is it a negative or a positive? And I'm glad this morning that if we sin and we confess our sins, that Jesus Christ is faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's able to cleanse us and set us free and purge us. There's a fountain that is open for the cleansing of sin. Wash me, O Lamb of God. Wash me from sin by thine atoning blood, O pure within. I wonder, is that your cry this morning? Lord, make me clean. But not only will God test you and I on cleanliness and 
Holiness, he'll test us secondly and very quickly on obedience. Obedience. Now God's taken the swab again. The all-knowing, the all-seeing, he's come down and he's taken his hand, the divine hand, and he's taken a little biopsy of your soul. Are you obedient to the word? Am I? In John's epistle, there's seven or ten, maybe eight or nine, ten evidences of salvation. And the very first one is this. Hereby know, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Jesus said, ye love me if ye keep my commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. To obey him. It was Adam who disobeyed in the garden, and he lost fellowship with God. Didn't hear him anymore. God, God and him, there was a void, there was a separation because of disobedience. You remember Abraham, whenever Abraham, he took, he took Hagar and Ishmael was born. For 13 years, Abraham never heard the voice of God because he disobeyed God. When was the last time you heard the voice of God? When was the last time that you got alone in your study and you put the children out and the wife out and you turned the phone off and the television off and you got down and you heard the voice of God? His voice is unlike any other voice. The voice of the Almighty for 13 years. Abraham never heard his voice because he disobeyed God. You remember Moses, he got the rock and he struck the rock twice and he missed out on the blessing of God. What about Saul, the first king of Israel? He was head and shoulders above the men and women. He was beautiful to look at. The anointing of God rested upon him. And there's two incidences in his life where he disobeyed God. The first one was whenever he lost the kingdom and the second one when he lost the presence of God. All because of disobedience. He lost the joy and then he went on to lose his life because he disobeyed God. You know, dear friends, there's some of you here this morning, you can look back to days in your life when God was real. Younger days when you used to weep and used to pray and used to go and walk out in the fields and among the hedgerow and God was near, but he's not near anymore. I wonder, like Adam, has there been a break in fellowship because of disobedience? I wonder, like Abraham, has there been a break in communication because of disobedience and Moses and then Saul himself? Stephen Alford said, the man or woman who lives in 99% obedience to God is living a life of total disobedience. Samuel could say that rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is the sin of iniquity and idolatry. I'm going to ask you a question again. Are you obeying God? And everything? Whenever you read the Bible and you open the scriptures and it says you need to be baptized, are you obeying God? Whenever it says do this in remembrance of me on the first day of the week when we gather around to break the bread and to drink the cup and to remember him, do you obey God? You see, obedience is the key that unlocks the door to blessing, but disobedience is the very key that locks it again. And if you and I are disobedient to God, I tell you, dear friends, we will have no blessing. Some of you mechanics here, if you were to build an engine and you didn't go by the pattern, you'd have no power. No power. 
There would be no start, there would be no move, there would be no going through. And that's exactly the same, dear friends, when you and I come to the Word of God, we can't pick and mix what we obey. He's the Almighty God. We have to obey Him in the Scriptures. We have to obey the Spirit. You remember that time, sir, whenever you were praying, and the Holy Spirit put on your heart to go and see another brother, that you took money off it. He didn't know anything about him. God laid that on your heart to go and get that right. But still you haven't obeyed that voice of the Spirit. You remember whenever you were praying, sister, and God laid on your heart about that little bit of gossip, that that lie that you told maybe about another sister and you need to go and put it right. Obey God. Obey. It was Ezra in Ezra chapter 10. It says, this matter belongeth unto thee. Arise and do it. You see, God's taken his proving the Christian reality and he's just dropped it into your heart now. He's looking to see if there's cleanliness and holiness. He's looking to see if there's obedience there. Not to some parts of the word, to all the word of God. Paul could stand before King Agrippa and he said, O King, I have not been disobedient. Now I'm coming to the last one. I wonder have you got a negative or a positive test in those two first things. Lord, is there a positive test of cleanliness and holiness? Lord, Lord, am I a candidate for purity? Lord, am I a candidate for vital reality with God because I'm living a life that's clean and pure and victorious? Oh, God, create in me a clean heart. What about obedience? Are we obeying God, be ye not hearers of the word, but doers also? For he that be a hearer of the word and not a doer is like unto a man that beholdeth himself in a glass. He looks into the mirror and he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he be not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed. It was Evan Roberts who stood in the Welsh revival and her brother Bertie reminded me of it a few months ago. Whenever Evan Roberts in the height of the 1904 revival, you know what he used to cry? Obey. Obey. Sir, you need to obey God. You can't hide anymore, sir. Sister, you can't run anymore. God's saying obey. Because the moment that you obey, the key will turn in the lock and the door of blessing will be opened. It'll bless your family, it'll bless your soul, it'll even bless this assembly. The last thing I want to bring to your attention that God tests in vital reality with himself is a surrendered life. The surrendered life. Just Paul, whenever he wrote to Timothy, he said to be a vessel on the honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use. In Romans chapter 6, he said, Yield yourselves as instruments of righteousness unto God. Andrew Murray, one of the most godliest men that South Africa ever had. Whenever Andrew Murray used to walk down the road, everybody used to stop in the shops and in the cars and used to watch Andrew Murray walking down the road. Such was the presence of God that rested upon him. And Andrew Murray, whenever he was over in England, he asked another preacher, he said, Sir, what is the greatest need in the evangelical church today? What is the message that we need to hear above everything else? And the man told Andrew Murray, he said, Preach 
Absolute surrender. Absolute surrender. Where you not only come to the cross and you gaze at the cross, but you get on the cross and you die to your ambitions, yourself and your motives, die to all your aspirations, and you say, Lord, here am I, send me. And you go like that little corn of wheat that falls into the ground, and unless it dies, unless it falls into the ground, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. To get alone with God and say, Lord, here am I, take all that I have. William Boo's daughter, the Marichelle, that went over to France. She was only a young teenager, went on her own. Went over into Paris, the ungodly city of the world. She said the most pathetic thing in the world today is a Christianity that doesn't sacrifice. She turned Paris back to God. That's what Paul meant when he said, I am crucified with Christ. I am no longer alive. He says, I'm dead to the world. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. You know, it was Ahab, whenever the old ungodly king of Syria came to Ahab, the king of Samaria, Ahab said these words, he said, all that I am and all that I have is thine. I wonder, have you ever come to that place, friends? Where you get down before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who sent his Son and died on a cross, and you say, Lord, I'm tired of formality. I'm tired of religion. I'm tired of the rhetoric. I'm tired of regulations. I want vital reality with God. And you surrender your life, lock, stock, and barrel to him. I was saved a year. Coming to the meetings here. Came to the prayer meetings. Sat around the Lord's table. But on Christmas Eve, or New Year's Eve of 2011, I remember getting out of my bed and getting down beside my bed and my tears coming out of my eyes and said, Oh God, if all Christianity is is going to meetings, if all Christianity is is not smoking and drinking, Lord, I don't want it anymore. I want you to become real to me. I can tell you, dear friends, it's saying that God will get his hand upon you. It's saying whenever the sacrifice is on the altar that the fire begins to fall. Where there's another power comes upon you, it's not your own power. A power up above human eloquence and ability where the Spirit of God lays His hand upon you. Where you pray and you cry and you get to know Him. Where the Word becomes a living Word. Where the place of prayer is not drudgery. Where the holy life is not regulations, but is vital living moment by moment with God. All that I am and all that I have is yours. In the German, the city of Germany, one of the cities over in Germany of, of Dusseldorf, Count Sindensdorf went in and he saw a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ with a crown of thorns in his head. And Pilate standing before him, and underneath the painting it says, I have done this for you. What have you done for me? And Count Zinden's orphan home, 16 years of age, and he wrote his name on a piece of paper, and he said, I hereby sign my life over to God. And God used that young man to bring revival among the Moravians. A few years later, there was a young woman who was there by the name of, of Francis Ridley Havigil. Some of you know her hymns well. And she stood and she gazed at the very same picture that young Count Zindensorf stood at. I gave my life for thee. What hast thou done for me? 
And young uh, Frances Ridley Havergill, she went home and she penned that lovely wor- words of that lovely hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. Consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my will and make it Thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is Thy throne. It shall be Thy royal throne. He'll take away your burdenless, passionless, visionless, lifeless, fruitless life. And he'll give you a vision that is his vision. He'll give you his burden. He'll give you his love for a dying world. He'll give you his life. He'll totally transform your life. He'll give you his fruit and his tears. The Bible has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. I haven't got time to go through this morning, but he's pictured as a dove. You remember when the Lord came out, up out of the waters of the Jordan, the dove, the picture of the Holy Spirit rested upon him, speaks of peace. I want to tell you, dear friends, whenever you get on the altar, whenever you lay yourself there, I'll tell you the peace of God comes into your soul. He's also depicted in the scriptures as fire, purity. It was William Booth, that mighty man of God. He said, thou Christ, thou burning, cleansing flame, send the fire. Look down and see this waiting host, send the fire. The fire we need, for the fire we plead, send the fire. Oh, the fire, dear friends, will burn up the carnality. The fire will burn up the worldliness. The fire will burn up the greed and the bitterness and unforgiveness. Burn me up, Lord. Set me in fire for God. The fire. Amy Wilson Carmichael, that young woman lived down in Malayal, who went to India. She said, oh, for a passionate passion for souls, oh, for a pity that yearns, oh, for the love that loves unto death, oh, for the fire that burns, oh, for a pure prayer power that prevails, that pours itself out for the lost, victorious prayer in the conqueror's name, oh, for a Pentecost. God has taken his PCR test to proving the Christian's reality. And he strips us of all our rhetoric and all our religious language. I wonder, is there a positive or a negative this morning? I wonder, are you really surrendered to God? I wonder, are you really obedient to him? I wonder, are you really living in that upward plane where there's more ups and downs, victory over sin? Where you claim the power of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, I can say this morning, dear friends, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the pleasures of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior, thou. If ever I love thee. My Jesus does now. Have you got vital reality with God? Not on the spiritual level of 2022, but when you base it against the word of God, is it real? I wonder what there be people here this morning and you say, Lord, I want to be real. Some of you men here this morning, your children will die and go to hell, sir, if you don't get real. Some of you parents here, your family will go to hell if you do not get real. 
It's time that you get real. This is only the mock test. The beam of seat is coming. The real thing is coming. The Bible says, draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. 